Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, again, I want to welcome all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are joining us online and those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, uh, down in South Calgary and Bridgeland, and also in the northwest part of our city in the Crowfoot area. We're in a series that we're calling Christianity 101, in which we're examining the core beliefs of the Christian faith, and presently we're looking at what the Bible has to say about the church and God's plans and purposes for the church. But before we get into it, would you just stand with me again and join me as we dedicate this time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word, Lord, for reaching out to us, revealing yourself to us, Lord, not only in creation through Jesus Christ, but also through your word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand your heart for the church, what you intended the church to be. Just pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, you would uh, focus our minds, and Lord, you give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. Before I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. may be seated. Harvard professor Robert Putman has done a significant amount of research on what makes people happy and satisfied in life. His research revealed that the key to satisfaction in life is not wealth, it is not position, attractiveness, intelligence, or achievement. Rather, the single greatest factor that impacts how satisfied people are in life is deep, satisfying relationships. Now, even though many found Putman's conclusions profoundly insightful, this is not exactly a new revelation. All we have to do is go back to Matthew, the second, uh, 22nd chapter, where Jesus taught about the importance of relationships. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? In other words, what should our highest priority be in life? This is how he answered. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus said in this life, nothing is more important than loving God and loving people. Not that it's wrong to want to achieve things. God is pleased when we take the abilities, the gifts, and the talents that he's given to us, and we use them to bless people and to make our world a better place to live in. Jesus' concern is that we make the building of healthy relationships the primary focus of our lives. That we not cheat on our relationships in order to achieve more. Because when it's all said and done, our relationships are going to mean so much more to us than our achievements. Now the sad thing is, many people are either unaware of or just deliberately ignoring this truth. 
I mean, people say meaningful relationships are important to them, but if you look at the way most people are living today and the pace of their lives, are you kidding me? I mean, there was a time back in the Leave it to Beaver days, 50 years ago or so, when people would sit on their front porch and visit with family and with neighbors and friends. When children played with friends all over the community and one of the parents was at home to kind of keep their eye on things and keep things sane. Now people walk or run on their private treadmills in their homes, use their car to do their shopping and errands and promptly park back in their garage when they return and therefore never need to speak to anyone in their neighborhood. For most people, days begin very early with a high percentage of children being dropped off at school or at daycare and dad and mom working a little over nine hours a day on average. Earnings, evenings are spent racing from one activity to another. And when they are home, they typically spend most of the evening watching television, which regularly informs them of all the thieves, murderers, and rapists who are roaming the streets of their city or their small town. And this only elevates their fears, and so alarm systems and heavy locks and, and doors are installed, and children are allowed only to play in the backyard surrounded by a six-foot fence. Once children are settled and asleep, bulging briefcases are opened, complete with unfinished work from the office. Finally, around 10.30 or 11 or so, they collapse in bed, too exhausted to talk. They fall asleep, dreading the thought of having to do it all over again the next day. Add it all up and people feel exhausted and isolated and alone. Even though they interact with numerous people every day, most people, if they were to be brutally honest, would have to admit that they have a number of casual friends, but very few have any or very few close friends. In fact, many are incredibly lonely. George Gallup's research verifies this to be the case. He says, North Americans are among the loneliest people in the world. Well, this is not the way God intended for us to live. This was not his plan. When God created the earth and mankind, he created a paradise. It was a perfect community in which Adam and Eve loved each other perfectly. There was no insecurity. There was no fear. There was no critical or competitive spirit. No loneliness. However, as we know, in Genesis chapter 3, we read our first parents rebelled against God. And when that happened, the community that God desired for man was fractured. Their relationship with God and with each other was broken. Adam and Eve looked at each other and something had changed. The oneness of spirit between them was gone. Instead of loving and accepting one another, they began to accuse and reject one another. Instead of including and supporting one another, they began to compete and make demands of one another. Instead of encouraging one another, they began to hurt, be hurt and, and began to hurt and be critical of one another. And folks, analyze it any way that you want to. 
The insecurity, the rat race, the misguided ambitions, the unhealthy comparisons and competition, the shallow relationships and loneliness that we see in the world around us can be traced back to this fundamental shift that occurred back in the garden. But you see, God is not a quitter. He's a lover. He's a God of grace, a God of second chances, a God of compassion. And he looked at all of the negative fallout that happened as a result of Adam and Eve's decision. And he said, I'm going to make a way for everyone to come back in right relationship with me and also with each other. I'm going to reestablish a new community, a healthy loving community, not unlike what Adam and Eve experienced before the fall of man. Now to accomplish that, God sent his son Jesus to make it possible through his death and resurrection for people to be brought back in right relationship with God and to bring his children of faith into community once again that God had in mind from the beginning. And that new community, folks, is the church. The church is not a perfect community because it's filled with imperfect people. But God's plan for the church is perfect. And wherever people live out God's idea for the church, even come close to living it out, their impact is revolutionary and life-changing. God wants the church to be a community in which relationships resemble what Adam and Eve experienced before their rebellion. A community characterized by love, acceptance, belonging, being valued and supported. For example, scholars tell us that we have three great needs as human beings. All of them have to do with our relationship with others. First of all, we have a need for acceptance. To be loved and accepted for who we are. Secondly, we have a need to belong, to be included, to be cared for, to be supported. And thirdly, we have a need for significance or, an, or to feel needed and valued by others. Now, before the fall of man in the garden, these, these needs weren't even a factor in the life of Adam and Eve because they felt loved, accepted, cared for, supported, and valued. But you see, all of that changed when Adam and Eve decided to take matters into their own hands. These blessings of God turned into glaring needs, which we now see defining relationships. Well, as we're going to see in a moment, God's plan is for the church to be a community that meets these needs again the way they were met in the garden before the fall of man. In the scriptures, we find three metaphors or word pictures that help us understand what God envisioned the church to be. First of all, the church is described as a family where you are loved and accepted. Secondly, the church is described as a building where you belong and are supported. And thirdly, the church is described as a body where you are needed and valued. Each one of those metaphors speaks to 
the deep needs of man. Let's look at them a little more closely. First of all, the church is a spiritual family where you are loved and accepted. John 1.12 tells us how we become part of God's family. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, spiritual children of God. Goes on to say, children not born of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. That's where that term born again comes from. And that verse tells us that when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, in the spiritual realm, God becomes our father. And we become his children. And the church becomes our spiritual family. Remember again, the church is not a building. The church is us, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. When you were born, you became part of the human family. But when you were born again, when you by faith embrace Christ as your Savior and Lord, you become part of God's family or church. Ephesians 2.19 describes it this way. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. In other words, members of his spiritual family, built on the foundation of the apostles, that's the new covenant, and the prophets, the old covenant, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Now God wants the church to be a family that reflects the character of Jesus Christ. The more we surrender to Jesus and live in humble dependence upon him, the more we're going to be like him. And the more we're going to reflect his character the more we're going to reflect the love of Jesus, the joy and peace of Jesus, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control of Jesus. And the more his character is reflected in us, the more it's going to be reflected in the community that we are part of the more accepting, the more loving, and the more beautiful his church family is going to become. In Romans 12, verse 9, the Apostle Paul describes a loving church family this way. He says their love is sincere. In other words, they're real. They aren't pretending to be something that they're not. They're humble enough to be open and transparent about their feelings and fears and their insecurities. They get past the small talk, past the surface stuff, share with each other at the, at the level of their soul. They ask each other deeper questions like, how are things between you and the Lord? How are things at home? How are you doing with God's call in your life? How are things between us? In verse 10, Paul says, a loving church family, they're devoted to one another. They choose to see the good in the other, to believe the best about the other. They're considerate of others' feelings, and they're patient with people who are irritating. 
The reality is in every group, there's always at least one difficult person. You've perhaps noticed that. A person who has quirks and annoying traits that challenge our patience. Now, if everyone in your group seems normal, then I guess we're talking about you. But you know, seriously, a loving church family reflects the love that's shared by the Trinity. Think about the Trinity, the love that's shared between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you think about it, there isn't a trace of elitism or snobbery or dishonor within the triune God. They always point to the other. They serve the other. There's no competition. There's no inferiority. There's no power struggles or hurt feelings. Jesus didn't walk around saying, hey, look at me, I'm the Son of God. No, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. This is the heart of a loving church family. There's a genuine humility that seeks to build bridges rather than build walls. You know, hum humility is, is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. A loving church family thinks more about others. They focus on the other instead of themselves. They listen to each other. They want to know how they can support and help the other person. They don't compete against each other, but they cheer each other on to reach their God-given potential. They don't gossip. They don't tear each other down. In verse 11, Paul says the loving church family challenge each other to stay hot for God, to not become lukewarm or half-hearted in their faith, but to keep their spiritual fervor alive. You know, that's just a glimpse of the kind of loving church family God envisions for us to be part of. But you see, implied through all of this is that we are part of God's family. And not in name only, but that we're actually connected relationally with one another. Now, of course, we won't live like this perfectly. But God wants all of us to be engaged with a small group of others where everyone not only knows your name, but everyone knows your game, as it were, your struggles, your fears, your needs, and loves and accepts you anyways. You know, if you're a perfect person, if you've got it all together, then this church is probably not for you. But if you're humble enough to admit that you don't have it all together, that spiritually you still have a few lo screws loose, that your spiritual elevator doesn't go all the way to the top, then welcome to our church family. You're going to feel right at home. So first of all, the Bible describes the church as a spiritual family where you're loved and accepted. Furthermore, the Bible describes the church as a spiritual building where you belong and are supported. Look at Ephesians 2.19 again. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We're being built together. Do you get those words? You know, if you go to a construction site, you're going to notice all kinds of building materials laying around. Everything from plywood and lumber and steel rebar, nails, screws, wires, and the like. Now, all those materials serve no purpose until a skilled craftsman takes each of those pieces of lumber and steel and connects them the right way at the right place. Well, what the Apostle Paul is teaching us through the metaphor of a building is the church was never meant to be a collection of individual lives. The church will only be the church that Christ intended it to be when we're connected to each other. You see, the metaphor of a building powerfully illustrates what, what it means to be the church. Because all the connected parts support each other. You know, the beams support other beams. The walls support the roof, and the roof protects the walls and holds it all together. They're all connected, and they're all supporting. If they weren't connected, think about this. If they weren't connected, the building wouldn't exist at all. All you'd have is a bunch of lumber and steel lying around in the yard. Now, the reality is we all have a deep need to belong. The need to be supported, particularly in times of trouble. But you see, the support won't be there if you're not connected. So let me ask you, if your spouse ended up in the hospital tonight in critical condition, if your child threatened suicide, or if some major crisis hit tonight, where would you turn to for support? Who's going to hold you up during the tough times? A while back, I prayed with someone who was going through severe health problems, and I asked him if he had a support network, a small group or something that he was part of. And his response was one that I hear too often. He said, Pastor, for years I've given my life to making it, in the marketplace, hoping to provide security and a comfortable lifestyle for our family. We attended church, and yes, we did get to know a few people on a more casual basis, but we made a choice to not connect meaningfully with anyone. And so my answer to your question is no. We have no family in this city, and I can't think of anyone that I know well enough to ask for support right now. Think about that. And so I ask you again, as you reflect on your relationships, are you investing in any 
relationships at all. That may one day be there to support you in your time of need. You see, Christ established the church to be a spiritual family where you're loved and accepted and where you love and accept others. He established the church. He intended it to be a spiritual building where you belong and where you're supported and where you are a source of support and where you communicate love and affection to others. It's a two-way street. And then thirdly, the Bible describes the church as a spiritual body where you're needed and valued. Romans 12, in verse 4, it says this, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, there are two observations I want us to note from this particular passage. And the first one is this. This passage teaches that you are important. Just like every part of your physical body is important, so you are unique and have a special role to play as part of Christ's church. Furthermore, you are needed to make the body complete and to make it function well. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday, but if my voice decided that it just wasn't important, I mean, you can't see it. It's kind of hidden behind the scenes, so to speak. <laughs> if my voice decided that it wasn't important or needed and went on strike, you know, I wouldn't be up here right now doing what God's called me to do. Now, for some of you, that, that might be a real blessing. But for others of you, you would miss out on what God wants to say to you today through this message. This little voice box is important. The point is every part of the body of Christ or the church is important, needed. And if I'm not doing what God's called me to do, if I'm not exercising the gifts and the talents that God's given to me, then his body, the church, won't be all God wants it to be. And it won't have the full impact that God wants to make in our world. You know, last night after the service, a woman came up to me and and shared that uh, when she was a little girl, her family was not a a family of faith. But there was a neighbor that offered to take her and her siblings to church. And she eventually became a follower of Christ. Well, she ran into one of the family members uh, recently at a funeral and made a point of thanking them for inviting her 
to church. And they sort of just passed it off lightly and just kind of made it sound like it wasn't a big deal. And she said to me, but it was a big deal. The, my eternal trajectory was changed because they did something that they didn't think was a big deal. They invited me and I found Christ. You may think that you don't have much to offer or that the little things that you do for the Lord just really don't matter or mean that much. But I want to remind you that you are an important part of Christ's church, his body. And your faithfulness matters. The time you take to listen to someone, the time you take to speak a word of encouragement into someone, the time you take to serve wherever it is God's called you to serve, the little things you do, some of the more significant things you might do, all those things matter to God because they make a difference in the lives of people, whether you see it right away or not. You are part of a spiritual family. And your life, the time, the resources, the gifts God's given to you matter. And when you don't exercise them, someone misses out. Now that's just a glimpse of what Christ intended his church to be. My question is, are you part of a spiritual family where you're loved and accepted, where you belong and feel cared for and supported, and where you feel needed and valued? You know, I talk to people all the time who desperately want to be part of such a family, but aren't prepared to make the tough decisions to make the necessary changes for it to happen. They have the best of intentions, but too often the other things, the lesser things, temporary things, crowd out building healthy relationships. And yet the reality is you, you can't microwave friendship. You can't cultivate friendships in a hurry. You can't listen in a hurry. You can't play and have fun in a hurry. You can't rejoice with those who rejoice in a hurry. You can't mourn and grieve with those who grieve and mourn in a hurry. When we let our quest for achievement distract us from investing in meaningful relationships, and consequently we go it alone, we're not only missing God's best for us, but we're actually hurting ourselves. For example, the American Institute of Stress has conducted extensive research on the impact a lack of social interaction has on one's health. One study found that isolated people or people who aren't in community with other people are three times more likely to die than people who are in meaningful relationships. That blows me away. Dr. Robert Putman in one of his studies found that people who had bad health habits like smoking, eating lots of junk food and so forth, but had strong relationships, lived significantly longer than people with great health habits, but had little time for relationships. In other words, it's better to eat donuts with good friends than broccoli alone. 
<laughs> Robert Putman says, even if you don't start working out, even if you don't make a decision to eat better, but you decide that you're going to join a small group, become part of a relational network, you cut the odds of dying this year in half. In half. No kidding. I've got a new motto for our community groups. Join a community group or die. Let's <laughs> put it right up there. But seriously, who are the people in your life that you meet with regularly who are like a loving family to you, who serve as a refuge to you, who are open and transparent and make it easy for you to be open and honest with them? Who are the people in your life you can count on to have your back in times of trouble? Be at your side will illness or disaster strike. Who are the people who affirm you and encourage you and listen to you and who love to see you excel? Who are the people who love to tell you the truth in love and hold you accountable in those areas that you've asked them to? How many truly meaningful friendships do you have? Sadly, the research tells us that most of us have few, if any, friends at all. Sociologists tell us that the average male in North America has only one friend like this. And folks, that's the average, which means there's a whole pile of males who don't have any friends at all. And what's even more alarming is what most men call friendship, most women call a casual acquaintance. And the sad truth is, given the warp speed that most of us travel at, very few of us have genuine close friends. Well, I want to say it again, God never intended for us to live this way or to, to devote so much of our time to achieving things that we neglect cultivating healthy relationships. He designed us to have meaningful relationship with himself and also with others. Now, if you'd have to admit deep down inside that you're feeling isolated and, and somewhat lonely, as I was rattling off all this list of the kind of friends, the qualities of friendships, you realize that, yeah, you, you really don't have very many of those kind of friends, if any at all. And you want to change the direction your life is taking well, friend, then you have some life-changing decisions to make. This is one of the problems when we meet like this. You know, you can be challenged with something, but walk out the back door and never change anything. First of all, you're going to have to decide who it is you're going to trust. Are you going to trust in God or are you going to trust in yourself? Are you going to trust in the word or the world? In Matthew 22, Jesus said, In this life, nothing is more important than loving God and loving others. Do you believe him? Do you trust him in this? If you do, then you need to act on what you believe. You need to look, take a long, hard look at your values and your priorities 
And yes, especially your calendar. And make some necessary changes. If it doesn't show up in your calendar, then don't say it's important. You always have time for what is most important to you. So who are you going to trust? Christ or our culture? Secondly, what are you going to give your life to? You know, some people live for security and happiness. I mean, for them, life is all about getting the paycheck and living for the weekend. Their favorite logo is, thank God it's Friday. It's what they live for. Other people live for success. They're driven by a need to be seen as important and successful in the eyes of other people. And still other people live for significance. You see, they're passionate about giving their life to a cause that outlasts them, that is eternal, that finds its source in the heart of God. The Apostle Paul clearly articulated what the focus of his life was. When he said in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ. Even though his life was full of hardships and challenges, he lived a life of simplicity because he had one focus. He had one overarching passion. He had one voice that he dialed into. He had one master that he was giving his life to and following. And everything in his life, including his relationships, came off of that. So again, let me ask you, what is it that you're giving your life to? How you answer that question will impact everything in your life. Your lifestyle, your relationships, including the kind of people that you hang out with and the quality of those relationships. For some of you, it may involve simplifying your lifestyle so you can slow down, not be enslaved to debt anymore, and be able to invest more of your time outside of work on the relationships and on the mission that God's called you to. For others of you, it may involve turning down that promotion that promises greater financial rewards. But you know it also promises greater responsibilities and less time for the mission or the relationship that God wants you to invest in more. And so we need to decide, who am I going to trust in? And what am I giving my life to? For some of you, your mission may very well be in the workplace. And that's great. You need to follow the Lord and do what he calls you to do. But for you to live is what? And then finally, you need to surround yourself with a few others who have the same passion and purpose that you do. Jesus lived a close relationship with his heavenly Father. And you would think on the basis of that that he wouldn't need anybody else. And yet the first thing that he did when he began his ministry was to surround himself with a small group of men for accountability, compassion, encouragement, and to fulfill the mission the Father had called him to. 
fully devoted followers of Christ know that God's call is costly and it's countercultural. Most everything in our culture goes against the grain of what Christ called us to do. It's not easy to love those who curse you. It's not easy to reach out to those who reject you, to give away your time and money when the world too often spends all that they have on themselves. And so you're going to need a group of like-minded individuals, a small group of people who have the same passion and purpose that you do, who are committed to keeping Christ at the center of their lives, committed to sharing their lives with one another with honesty and humility and courtesy and confidentiality, committed to meeting together regularly, praying for each other, caring and encouraging one another, growing together in God's word and listening to his voice and his assignments, and then serving and reaching out as he calls you to. And so again, I ask you, are you part of a loving spiritual family like this? Do you have any godly friends? Even just two or three? Are you a godly friend? If you do not have a small group like this, I want to challenge you to get on your knees and begin to pray and ask God to show you someone that you might want to invite into your life and to do life together as God leads you. Or pray that God would introduce you to someone that you can join on this journey that the Lord has called us to. But to do all of that, friends, you have to get intentional. You have to take some risks. You have to die to your pride and your insecurities. You have to take some risks. Introduce yourself to some people. Shake some hands. Begin some conversations. Invite someone over for coffee or lunch. Start a group or join a group. Or step out and serve in a ministry. The opportunities are endless. And in the process of reaching out and caring more for others then for yourself, you're going to discover that you're learning to be a godly, loving friend and that you're attracting godly, loving friends in return. I wish that for every one of you. And I pray that it will be so to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. I'll close with this. A few years ago, I received a, an email uh, from one of the volunteers in children's ministry that reminded me not only of why we exist as a church, the power of relationship and the importance of being in relationship with others. She told me about a five-year-old girl who attended our preschool ministry every week. This young girl gave her heart to Jesus a few weeks previous to me receiving the email and now God placed a burden on her heart for her parents who weren't believers. Whenever she came to church, she would ask all who would listen to pray for her mommy and daddy that they would come to love Jesus too. The leader wrote, Today as I drove, home, as I drove her home from church, she was crying in the car for her parents 
and asked me if I would invite them to church. Isn't it true that sometimes a little child can reveal to us the heart of God more than anyone? Here was a girl not even six years old yet, passionate about only one thing, and that was to love God and that the people that she loved the most would love God as she did. Friends, Jesus said, there's nothing more important in life than to give our lives to loving God, to loving others, and to loving others to Jesus. That little girl was introduced to Christ because someone decided to love people. So mark my word, if your heart is set on loving God and loving others in the way that we've talked about, you will come to the end of your life saying, I did the best possible thing with my life. May it be so, to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs Jesus. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? I'm going to invite you again just to open your hands before the Lord and to ask those two most important questions. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? Father, I want to thank you for these people whom you love and whom your son Jesus died for. Lord, I pray that all of us will have realized in a new way that even if we don't end up in the biggest office in the corporation or with the biggest bank account or the most well-known name, if we love God and if we love people, we'll be incredibly rich in the end because we have you and the love of true friends and family. I pray for anyone who is into achieving more than loving. May something have clicked today, and may they have made a decision, Lord, and may they be making it even right now to change the focus of their lives. For those of us who would have to admit they really don't have any close friends that we talked about, Lord, may they take the risk to invite others into community or to become part of a small community group 
or a ministry here or some other ministry, wherever it is you lead them. Most importantly, if anyone hasn't embraced you, I pray that you would pour out your love and grace on them right now by your spirit, that they would sense your love and reach out to you in faith. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and also for the family of God, the church. I pray that you would show each of us every day how we can love you and love others more. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.